Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, June 4th, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. The Lord gives Jeremiah two object lessons to proclaim judgment against the people of Judah and Jerusalem, a linen loincloth and jars of wine. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's good to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Cook, let's talk a little context. We're in Jeremiah 13, the first part of it this morning. What do we need to know about the prophet, his ministry, where we are in the book to help us into the text for today? The prophet is uh, in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not yet destroyed, but will be before the prophet's, um, in the prophet's lifetime. So that's the big hinge in the book, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, in the book, we're in chapter uh, 13. The, it gets to be a little tricky to find um, a very nice, uh, comfortable logical structure. Um, it doesn't seem to follow. Uh, they, they feel more like a disjointed, uh, more like links as opposed to a unified um, story, which the Santa suggested isn't unified. Um, but uh, the context, it, it's not like the Gospels, per se, uh, or even like the Book of Kings, where the immediately preceding context gives a lot of clarity on the next chunk. Um, they're they're a little bit self-contained, though moderately dependent on what precedes and follows. The biggest thing is to know where it falls. Is this pre-fall of Jerusalem or post-fall of Jerusalem? And this is pre-fall of Jerusalem. Right. Jeremiah is not strictly chronological in the way that the book is laid out, at least. And so it is helpful to, to know, if you can, where it falls. Sometimes it's not always obvious. I mean, I think pre-fall of Jerusalem, that's the most important, whether it happened during the reign of Josiah or one of the later kings before Jerusalem fell. That's really kind of hard to tell. Uh, But we are here before the fall of Jerusalem. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I call them object lessons. I'm not sure if that's the best language, actually, now that I I think about it. We're going to have two, maybe we could say, enacted prophecies here. And this is something that's not unfamiliar from the prophets, but maybe it's something that requires a little bit of explanation before we actually read the text. What What is it that we're going to see in these two inactive prophecies? Or if you've got a better title, give it to me. Um, yeah, the, that's pretty good. Symbolic actions, perhaps. Um, I, I would contend there's really only one here. Okay. Um, 12 through 14 is just a proclamation, a, a straight, this is what God is going to do. Uh, Jeremiah doesn't actually fill up the jars with wine. Uh, he just says, this is, this is how it's going to go down. Uh, so it's, it's one uh, symbolic action and, um, or an acted prophecy, and uh, it has to do with a uh, piece of clothing, and it is, um, as you pointed out, this is a thing that happens uh, by um, multiple, uh, multiple people and multiple prophets, but it happens frequently in Jeremiah's lifetime, where he, uh, I think probably the, the most famous instance in the book of Jeremiah is when he is commanded to take a uh, flask or a earthenware pot and he shatters it on the ground, and then he speaks. Um, you know, that becomes the analogy for his proclamation about God against his people. And there's a, there's a slug of these. In uh, chapter 16, he's told not to take a wife. In 19, he breaks the flask. In chapter 27, he builds 
like a yoke, like a oxen yoke, and wears it around town. Um, chapter thirty-two, he uh, buys a field while Jerusalem is under siege. Um, so this is really kind of the first one of these symbolic actions that occurs within this prophet. You might recall that Ezekiel is is commanded not to mourn the death of his wife. Uh, so he's not the only he's not the only prophet uh, uh, who who does that. Now we would also add that these are intentionally symbolic actions, as opposed to say the prophet Jonah, who's being swallowed by the great fish, was a symbolic action, but that was not because God commanded him to do it, but because, but because that's what happened. So there's there's a distinction for you there. Sure, and so these I mean these are meant to be a a visual preaching, right? I mean, so these are just like the words of Jeremiah were meant to be heard. Actions like we're going to see in chapter 13, and then later on, as you pointed out, these are meant to be seen by the people. Yes. Um, you, you know, what does Christ do along these? What what symbolic actions do we see Christ take up uh, in his ministry to communicate to the people? And, uh, you know, the two that jump jump out to me right away would be uh, his cleansing of the temple hmm. is a very uh, symbolic action. And then another one around the temple is his cursing of the fig tree. Um, so I would, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, preachers and, yeah, preachers and uh, apostles and teachers have been communicating in this way all along. It's another form of communication, so... Um, even in uh, even in my own ministry, I may be more likely to reserve the the symbolic action for, say, a Sunday school lesson or a children's sermon. But I've I've woven them into uh, a sermon from from time to time, and and they definitely carry with it a um, you know it's it's just impacting another part of the senses of the person um so instead of it just being heard it's something that's seen or experienced uh which is uh you know helpful in the communication of of the word of god be it in its full uh sternness of law or its full sweetness of gospel and so the distinction and i'm glad you you mentioned this the distinction between what happens in verses 1 through 11 and then verses 12 through 14 is that in verses one through 11, Jeremiah is quite literally going to do something with this linen loincloth. Whereas in 12 through 14, he's probably not doing something with the jars of wine, but he's rather inviting people to picture that in their minds and making use of that. Like an example in a sermon, whereas the linen loincloth, that's something that he's actually going to wear. They're going to see him do this. Correct. Yep. That's you're exactly. So I don't know if I can improve on that, but uh, a simple analogy would be, or an example would be in a sermon, you might say, imagine a man kicking a ball. Or if instead of doing that, you just stepped out of the pulpit and you drop kicked a football across the sanctuary. Uh, I mean, those are two, uh, both communicating something, maybe even the same thing, uh, but in, in quite different modes. So let's let's see how this plays out in Jeremiah chapter 13. We're reading the first 14 verses this morning. Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist, and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth, according to the word of the Lord, and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, Even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. 
For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. You shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine, and they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of the land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. That's our text for today. Jeremiah 13 verses 1 to 14. Pastor Cook, the, the text does break down into those two sections pretty nicely. Verses 1 through 11 deal with a loincloth. 12 through 14 deal with the jars of wine. In terms of that first part, the loincloth, which is the majority of our text today, how would you arrange that text in a, a general structure? Yeah, if you think of it like uh, <laughs> God makes a command which uh, to... To Jeremiah, and he obeys and fulfills the command. Upon the completion of obeying and doing the command, God gives him another command, which he obeys. Then God gives him another command, which he obeys. And then after doing that three times, then God interprets um, the actions. So he gives meaning to, all right, let me just tell you what you did. So... um, that that's the structure. God's word comes to Jeremiah to do something. Jeremiah does it. God's word comes to Jeremiah to do something. Jeremiah does it. God's word comes to Jeremiah and Jeremiah does it. And then God tells Jeremiah what the meaning was for all of that activity that has just taken place. So you you would describe it in what you sent me ahead of time like a scavenger hunt. Yeah, it reminded me of. Uh, I, I think of uh, in college when people would get engaged, depending on how creative the the groom-to-be was, he might uh, send his fiance on a scavenger hunt, go travel to this place where she finds another uh, envelope with another list of instructions, uh, and then she fo- goes to the next place and finds another envelope with a list of instructions, and et cetera, until such time as uh, there she finds her uh, you know, husband to be on one knee uh, proposing. And it reminded me of that because Jeremiah is not told why he's doing what he's doing. He's just given this command and in obedience, he does it. Uh, and he, he doesn't know kind of the broader, bigger picture. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and and there's, uh, there's something very instructive there for us where, you know, the homiletician in me just wants to maybe uh, dig deep into that, that uh, there is an obedience among the prophet to the Word of God, even though the prophet is, I mean, if you remove the explanation for what's going on, this is just weird. And it must have been or felt weird to Jeremiah at the time. Like, oh, Go do this thing. Okay, he does it. Well, you know, and he does it in faith. He trusts that the Lord has a purpose and a plan for what he's doing. Hmm. And, and so he does it. He does not uh, bicker with God um, as to, like Moses, you know, why me? Or what's this going to do? Or what's it going to accomplish? It's Nope, he just, he does it. Hmm. And then the Lord reveals the rationale uh, at a later time. And even if God hadn't done that, it's probably still the right uh, way to go, <laughs> is to obey his commandments. Certainly. And so not that not that you and I would expect to be sent on a divine scavenger hunt today, but, but rather that when, when we have the word of the Lord, the simple to listen and obey and do it, or listen and believe it, depending on if it's a command or promise, that is the, the faithful Christian response. Yes, that is correct. 
And so Jeremiah gives that to us in the way that he goes on this divine, I like that, the divine scavenger hunt with a loincloth. So let's talk a little bit about what what's going on here, just so that we get some of the details. There's several things to talk about just to try to get this picture in our minds. So the Lord says to Jeremiah, go and buy a linen loincloth, put it around your waist, do not dip it in water. Let's just start with the loincloth. That's how the ESV translates this piece of clothing. What what are we talking about here? What is this loincloth? It is uh, an issue of... uh some debate among scholars as to the exact nature of the clothing. The, um, it, the this word is Aitzer, is how you roughly how you pronounce it in Hebrew, and um, it it's not very common in Scripture. It shows up a number of times here in this text, but otherwise just four other times: once in Second Kings, once in Job. Uh, Two times in the same sentence in Isaiah, um, and, and a couple, and maybe one other place um, later on, and so it gets translated. Uh, the King James uh, translated it as a girdle, and the NIV translated it as a belt. And the linen loin, then here in ESV, it's it's loincloth, and um, there seems to be uh, some flexibility there. So it is, uh, it is a leather aitzer, or a leather belt, that is around the waist of Elijah, which is significant because of the gospel writer's insistence on talking about John the Baptist as wearing the same clothes as Elijah, right? So um, that's, uh, that's a reference to a belt, um, not, not a loincloth, but... Um, so yeah, it's you know it's it's tough. You you have to make a decision, and that's in in translating. What what are you going to do? And um, I think the loincloth here is the best um, translation, as opposed to um, uh, perhaps a belt, uh, primarily because of the terms of uh, the image of intimacy um, that the Lord is communicating in in this context. And so uh, I think a loincloth is a good is a good choice as long as we don't read too much into um, the very specific article of clothing. Um, so there there you have it. We have. Um, I wanted to point out that in Isaiah, we get um, in chapter eleven, the Lord is said to be wearing an aitzer or this loincloth belt girdle thing of righteousness. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, we hear that around Advent, Christmas time, that Isaiah 11 text. Um, so that would be another, um, just to help you get a broader picture of the, the full semantic range of this, of this word. But I remember one uh, co- commentary I was looking at said uh, uh, there's, there's significant debate about uh, what this is. In fact, I believe they said... Uh, the exact quote is, there is some discussion about the exact object Jeremiah is ordered to buy. Some say it is a belt to tighten his clothes. Others believe it is a loincloth or a loose-fitting garment close to the skin. Hmm. So, so they the, hedge their bets, too. Sure. So, I mean, as, as we try to, and, and not that we're going to suddenly solve it right here this morning, but just to, to try to how we might make decisions on this, looking at the text, you brought us toward the end of the text where the Lord says in verse 11, as the loincloth, this piece of clothing clings to the waist of a man. So the, the idea here, this piece of clothing in Jeremiah 13, the, the key is that it clings closely. I think you use the word intimate. So something that, that is, wrapped closely to the person seems to be the the main point of comparison that the Lord's going to use. And so right. whatever that item of clothing may be, we may not be able to to say it precisely in our English, you know, when I what can I go to Walmart and buy that would be comparable? Well that that may not be the exact thing. I think I've I've heard others, you know, try to use words like like underwear, something like that, something that's that's close to your body. But that's not the main point. The the idea is something that's that's held tightly, clings closely to the body. That's going to be the main point of comparison. 
and it's probably the the more important point for us to pick out than necessarily identifying again what you could go buy at Walmart. Yep, yep, that's uh, that's exactly that's exactly correct. Uh, in the sense of just don't get lost um, in the exploration into what is this thing is a valid uh, pursuit of um, academia or uh, intellectualism, et cetera, or study of the word of God. But if you spend all the time trying to I hammer home this exact thing and you lose sight of, well, what's actually the point um, or the meaning uh, of what's going on here, you'll miss it. So that, that, um, the closeness is in the clinging and, you know, you hear that word cling and boy, you know, belt certainly does that, mm. you know, um, but the, no. So it's it's hard to fault the translators uh, for for their their choice of choice of word there. So it's a loincloth. Now the the Lord also tells Jeremiah to make sure he buys a linen loincloth. Is there significance to the material here? Uh, there might be, but I didn't discover it in my study. Um, there is um, a reference to linen being uh, associated with the priesthood in the book of Exodus that is referenced in Exodus 19 and again in Exodus 28. Um, But there, the linen is not associated with an Aetzer. It's associated with a different article of clothing, Um, and so I don't want to read too much into that either. Um, But yeah, it's... um, it's uh, other than the reference to Jeremiah, um, sorry, to Elijah in Second um, Kings, uh, we're not told what the Aetzer is made out of, and there it's called it's it's leather. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I read a little bit ahead of time too, and some tried to make a connection between the linen that the priests would have wear and maybe Jeremiah. Maybe there's a connection there. Uh, you know, I mean, later in this text when he's talking about the jars of the wine. It, the priests, and he's done this before too, the priests are certainly included and are perhaps even more culpable in what's going on in the land of Judah at this time. Whether or not that's going on with the linen here in this case, I'm, I'm not sure. Trying to, to look at it contextually and thinking about just the, the other example of a, a loincloth or a belt that we know the material with the case of Elijah leather. I, linen maybe is going to be a, a material that's going to deteriorate more quickly than leather. I, I really don't know my, my clothing all that well, I suppose, but I would, I would think that linen would deteriorate more quickly. And so perhaps that's the reason that the Lord specifies linen to make sure that, that what he's going to have Jeremiah do works, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. That would, uh, uh, certainly, uh, Makes sense, and along those same lines, uh, linen definitely more uh, fragile, less durable than leather. Um, which, you know, back to what is it? You know, well, um, belts are typically made of leather, and uh, you know, loincloths are not usually leather. So, but you're right. Uh, he because he has a reference: don't dip it in water, and then that's not referenced again. Well, that was going to be my other question. Why is why would he say not to dip it in water from the outset? My my guess is, uh, and it is uh, only an educated guess, is the communication of what's happening. We need this object to be destroyed uh, in order to make kind of the rhetorical punch work at the end of the proclamation. So um, we don't want the, you know, we, we don't want to ruin the aha moment uh, too soon. All right. So so not not wash it, again, has to do with where this is going to go. So just so we have our bearings again, the Lord tells Jeremiah, go buy this linen loincloth, this closely clinging garment, a, a symbol of intimacy, of closeness, and wear it. Put it around your waist. That's And again, that's where, you know, what are, what kind of are we item of clothing we're we talking about a belt seems to fit perhaps so wear it so verse two this is what you're saying earlier jeremiah says i bought a loincloth according to the word of the lord put it around my way so he he does it and again this is something that the people are going to see so they're they're going to see jeremiah who's been 
preaching to them, at least at some point, and we're talking about context, I suppose he's got to be at least a, a reasonably known preacher in Judah and Jerusalem so that people are going to be looking. Oh, he's wearing that that belt or that loincloth still. So they're, they're going to see it. Then the word of the Lord is going to come a second time. And I think we're going to take our break a little bit early and pick that up on the other side of the break because there's more to talk about with that. And I don't want to interrupt that conversation. So you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO talking Jeremiah 13 with Pastor Tim Cook. We'll take that short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, June 4th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor Tim Cook. He serves at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we were laying out what's going on in this enacted prophecy, the symbolic action the Lord gives to Jeremiah. Jeremiah has done according to the word of the Lord. He's bought a linen loincloth and he's been wearing it around his waist for at least some time. The people have seen it as he's preaching. And then in verse three, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah a second time. And so now the next instruction along this divine scavenger hunt is to take the loincloth you have bought, which is around your waist and arise Go the, to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. There's a couple things we can talk about here. First is the Euphrates, as the ESV translates it. Now, the Euphrates River is a long way away from where Jeremiah is. And the Hebrew there is, is maybe invites some, some discussion. So take us into where are we talking about here, Euphrates or somewhere else? Well, that's uh, the, it's ambiguous. That's the problem. Um, it is whenever the Euphrates River is referenced um, in Scripture very, very clearly, um, this is the word that is used. Um, however, if uh, you grew up on the NIV, this was not translated as Euphrates, um, nor if you're Jewish, is it translated that either. Um, there it's, it's pronounced uh, or just translated as Parath, which is another uh, location, you know, using the same Hebrew letters, another location near Jerusalem, near the place where Jeremiah would have originally been from. And so what's uh, driving the, again, it's a bit of a debate. Did he travel all the way to the Euphrates and come back? Um you know, the text even makes alludes to the possibility that he traveled to the Euphrates, came back only to travel to the Euphrates a second time and come back. Um, you know, and a lot of uh, a lot of scholars are are wondering um, how this could possibly happen because uh, it's literally hundreds of miles away. It's either 400 miles one way or 400 miles round trip, and I forget. Um, but uh, so the commentary I consulted dismisses entirely out of hand on that basis. They say this cannot be the Euphrates. It's simply too far to travel. I'm unwilling to go that far. Um, that that presumes a lot of information I don't think we have access to. Um, but if, if Jeremiah did indeed travel to the Euphrates River uh, from Jerusalem during a time of war, traveling through enemy territory, uh, it would have taken a long time, and that length of time is not recorded uh, or referenced uh, anywhere here in the narrative, um, even though the multiple trips down to uh, to Egypt and the deportation of other people within the book of Jeremiah are referenced. Uh, so that would seem to be, um, you know, kind of speak against that as being a possibility. And yet, at the same time, you know, I guess it's possible um, it, that travel log doesn't need to be included in the narrative. Um, and um, 
I do believe that the the Euphrates River, the Euphrates River, uh, is definitely intended to be in the mind of the people, um, regardless of whether he went there or to another place of a similar name nearby. Um, there is a bit of a, a pun. Um, if he didn't literally go there, there's a pun in the word that is meant to evoke that imagery. Um, so, again, I'm not going to fault the, the translators of the ESV in any way for choosing to go with the word the word Euphrates. Hmm. So, it, I mean, he could have literally gone to the Euphrates River. The, the Lutheran Study Bible says, it says around 400 miles. I think a, a commentary that I consulted had a round trip of 700 miles approximately if he wanted to do that. Certainly he okay. could have done that, which I mean, he's got a long enough ministry that he, I mean, it's, you know, we're talking 40 years in which he's preaching that it's not impossible that he could have literally gone to the Euphrates River and back twice during the course of that ministry. That certainly would have, if, if that's the case, that certainly would have raised some eyebrows, I think, in Judah and Jerusalem because he's, he's gone for, for three months all of a sudden. Like, where, where did that Jeremiah fellow go to? And, and then he, right. he shows up. And, and maybe, you know, depending on, again, the garment, it, it might have made it very striking to, to see him, hey, he was wearing that linen loincloth before, now he doesn't have it. Then he brings it back it, during these extended periods of time. Possible, or as, as you said, it could be a, a play on words here where where Jeremiah literally goes is not all that far, thus making the action completely seen by the people, like the digging and all of that that comes up. But still, the Euphrates River is in the back of their minds or is intended to be in the back of their minds. So with, with that you know, option there, why, why would the Euphrates River either need to be the literal place or in the back of their minds? Because that's where the people are going. Um, the, the, people, the pride of Jerusalem or Judah, as it will be referenced later, um, the Babylonians are coming, they are going to sack the Israelites, and other than those who flee to Egypt, they are, they are going to be deported uh, back to Babylon, which is, uh, you know, where the Euphrates River is. And so God says, I am going to take uh, the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, and he's comparing this, he says he's going to spoil it. Um, this is in verse 9. Even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem um, like the, like the loincloth. And so you get this image of, uh, well, that's where the people are actually going. They are going to, um, yeah, they're going there. And, and likewise, not just the people, but Babylon you know, sacked the city and carried away much of its wealth, including uh, the, the furnishings and, and the great wealth of the temple, um, you know, whatever wasn't burned. So um, that's this embodied action um, is why the Euphrates, the actual Euphrates, uh, if not literally done by Jeremiah, needs to be in the forefront of the people's minds regardless. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to think of a, of analogy, uh, you know, of, um, you get these, uh, these towns like, uh, you know, New Berlin, right? Uh, mm -hmm. if, when you live here in the United States, you often find these towns that are just, um, hearkening back to, um, you know, the old country. Uh, so if you're in a, you know, predominantly Scandinavian town, uh, you know, maybe you get a lot of uh, Scandinavian-sounding names, or where I uh, was first called to the ministry, there were a lot of towns from England. So there was a Stratford and a Langford and a Aberdeen and a Switch. Um, and so you, I, I remember on Vicarage, uh, a woman was telling me um, that her husband was in the war, um, and she was not allowed to know where he was at and how she uh, one day randomly got a newspaper from Ipswich, South Dakota, a local newspaper. 
mm-hmm. sent to her from Ipswich, South Dakota. And she said that was how I knew where he was located. That was the way of him telling me where he was at without telling me where he was at. And I thought this was hilarious because it, it didn't really register in my mind until I received my first call where I ended up literally 19 miles south of Ipswich, South Dakota. So it, it became a kind of a, a small thing. That, this is what I'm getting at in you can communicate what you want to communicate without physically, like this is a thing that's possible. Now I don't you know, want this to be interpreted as uh, well, you know, you're just a modern, modernist and you're being uh, taken over by the Enlightenment or, or something like that. That's not what's driving uh, the the interpretation of the text here. It's just this is absolutely a possibility. And furthermore, the God has Jeremiah take on this embodied uh, practice or the symbolic action in order for the people to see it, that he might use that practice to be proclaimed. And so it would be silly if he just up and leaves and then he comes back after three months, six months, two years, and is like, oh, by the way, I was at the Euphrates. And everyone's looking at all the armies he had to pass through to get there, and they're nodding their head going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and we believe you too, you know, and they wink at him and they're like, this guy's crazy. Uh, So um, I, I think what I'm really trying to emphasize, because I'm extraordinarily sympathetic to um, not just explaining away on the basis of some rationalism why this can't be. It's possible that he went to the Euphrates. I'm not denying that. But I think the same same theological point can be made without him traveling that far. And, you know, from my humble perspective, and I'm certainly willing to change my mind on this, um, it, it, it doesn't seem to be particularly necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I get the point that you're making. There, there are reasons that you, it, I guess it's, we would say, it's going to depend on why you want to give that answer. If, if you want to say he didn't go all the way to the Euphrates because it was impossible or because the Lord wouldn't have done that for sure, then, then those are, there are certain theological assumptions that are being made already that, that we would disagree with. But in, in terms of just trying to, to picture in your minds what's going on without denying you know, what is or isn't possible for the Lord, what the Lord would or wouldn't have revealed ahead of time to the prophet, those kinds of, of questions— then, then there's a conversation that we can have and, and to say, yeah, I, I mean, and, and as you said, from the text, could he have gone to the phrase? Sure, he could have. Could he have also gone to this other location that is known by this name with Euphrates in the back of his mind? Yeah, I think we can say that too and, and see how... Actually, our other people would have had to because the NIV translated it as Paraf. Right. And, and what you lost with that translation is your people reading scripture are failing to make the connection to the Euphrates. Right. That's what was lost. And so I think the ESV translators absolutely did the right thing by moving it back to the Euphrates. Whether he went there literally or figuratively is not the point. What's the point is, hey guys, be paying attention to the Euphrates. There's something going on here as it pertains to God's judgment and you and his promises and your idolatry. Hmm. So with this action, then, Pastor Cook, he goes and buries it, and then he goes and digs it up sometime later. It doesn't specify. The the ESV reads in verse 6, after many days. So after an extended period of time, the Lord again tells Jeremiah, this is the last part of the divine scavenger hunt, go get it again. Go dig it up. Jeremiah does it. And when he finds it, it's spoiled. It was good for nothing. And now the Lord's going to make the point. Here's, here's what you're going to preach from this enacted prophecy, this symbolic action, Jeremiah. And he talks about he's going to spoil the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem. And he's, he's going to, I mean, this is going to be preaching very similar to what we've heard before from Jeremiah. What I, what I find that I think we should talk about is on the one hand, the Lord says, I'm going to spoil the pride of Jerusalem and Judah. But then he says, basically, the people are already good for nothing. They've already spoiled themselves. So it sounds like there's multiple things going on with this one image. Yep. Um, So the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem, is almost certainly the temple. 
right? Mm-hmm. Because what is it that the people of Judah and Jerusalem are taking pride in? It isn't. They are not taking pride in, we have Yahweh as our God. Mm-hmm. So they're, the, the faithfulness, they're not being proud or they're not um, boasting in the Lord as, as they should do. What they are boasting in is, hey, we've got this really nice temple. Hmm. And so he's like, that, that's, that's going to be gone. And that is, um, <laughs> at the risk of speaking too strongly, I think needs to terrify Christians a little bit about not losing sight of the Lord your God, even in the midst of things that are designed and built and commanded for the purpose of praising him. So this is very much a be very I be very careful your church building or the things in your church or congregation do not become themselves idols. That's always a thing you have to fight against and I say that as a guy who is extraordinarily supportive of your buildings your church buildings should look like churches. They should have uh, architectural excellence. Um, they should, you know, this is Christ. Go ahead, uh, spend big, get the best. This is all in proclamation to Christ. Um, you know, get the fancy chalice uh, for the Lord's Supper. I'm all in favor of that. But the immediate danger at all times, we see it here with the temple. We see it, you know, Hezekiah with the bronze serpent. These things quickly become idols. And so don't lose sight of of the Lord. So the pride of Jerusalem, that's going to get ruined. That's getting carted off to the Euphrates, quite literally. Hmm. That's that's a literal thing that's going to happen. Um, and then, well, let's talk about why this is all happening anyway. And the answer is because you guys aren't listening. You're idolatrous. You're unfaithful to to me. I, I have wanted to make you a praise and a glory for my name. You wouldn't listen. Hmm. So he's um, he's letting them know uh, what's what's kind of uh, on the way. He says, "I made you. I made you cling to me, right? It isn't. Uh, I was proud of you because you were clinging to me. No, I made you cling to me. Uh, the whole house of Israel and Judah, um, in order for good things. But you wouldn't listen. Mm. So yeah, this is not a case where they're good." like the good loincloth that got buried and then went bad. Uh, they were bad, and, would, you know, like every branch that doesn't bear good fruit, you cut it up and throw it away. Hmm. It's just what you do. Hmm. So, I mean, in, in that way, we want to we, we need to be careful as to how how we take that loincloth as an image. It's It's really doing a couple of things that aren't necessarily... Like there's not always this perfect, nice connection, say like a, an allegory might provide, but there's, there's a couple things going on. So on the, on the one hand, like the, the bearing of the loincloth and the spoiling of the loincloth does invite this literal carrying off of the people and the temple furnishings to the Euphrates River to Babylon. The spoiling of the loincloth also indicates what the people of Israel have, in fact, done to themselves. And that's the reason that the Lord is going to send them off into exile anyway. So there's, again, that's that's maybe not as nice and neat as we'd like in, in what you might call an allegory. But those those are some right. of the things that are being communicated here. Yeah, and it's a loincloth. I mean, right. so which gets back to the, the intimacy of there is a closeness that is designed between God and his people. Um, that uh, has also been been rejected. And that's maybe why, again, I would favor loincloth as an interpretation here, because idolatry is almost always couched in terms of, you know, you know literally fidelity, marital fidelity, uh, and uh, the constant accusations of, you know, whoring about that happens in Jeremiah chapter 2 and seemingly every chapter of Ezekiel. So um, there's... Uh, yeah, all of that is is going on, and um, even the back to your point of where it, it's not always as, as neat and tidy. You know, you read a passage: the loincloth was spoiled and it was good for nothing. And the jokester in me wants to say, "Well, actually, it's it pretty good for using as an analogy in a sermon." 
so, <laughs> you know, again, let's not be hyper literal here. Let's let's let the communication that's intended, um, you know, let's not, you know, that would be falling off the other side of kind of uh, modernity, where you want to uphold, uh, or rationalism, where you want to uphold the faithfulness of God's word, but but you can get yourself into some really ridiculous, you know, love your enemy. Satan's an enemy. I guess I'm supposed to love Satan. Like, oh, that's, okay, that's not that's not what we're trying to do. Um, and so, uh, yes, we have the loincloth communicating a few different things without it being uh, allegoric, allegorically tight. Uh, Pastor Cook, we got about nine minutes here, and I, I know you want to get to Jesus from this text, particularly from the loincloth. I want to make sure we let's talk about this second image, not an enacted prophecy, but a, an image that Jeremiah is going to use, and we'll come back to that. That how does Jesus fit into this at the end? So. Verses 12 through 14 follow right on the heels of this. And now Jeremiah is supposed to start talking about jars filled with wine. What What is being communicated in this short sermon? Yeah, um, so he says, every jar shall be filled with wine. And the reply of the people is, uh, we know. You know, that's, of course, is, is the response. So, um, you know, it'd be like, inviting everybody to come to church because you have something really important to tell them, and then you tell them that, um, you know, 7 plus 7 equals 14. And they would say, well, I know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where's the where's the wow factor? Well, the wow factor is what comes next. Yeah, the jars are going to be filled with wine, but I'm likewise, we're going to fill uh, you are going to be jars of vessels filled with drunkenness and wrath, and God's going to pour out His anger on each every each and every one of you. Uh, so that that's where uh, um, that's where the bite and the shock value comes in. Not that you need to be shocking in order to communicate clearly or be faithful, but um, this is a message that Jeremiah offers, and this is the part that uh, finally catches them off guard. Like, oh, okay, this is something we, well, it's something they needed to hear, uh, whether they wanted to hear it or not is um, uh, beside the point. And the context of the rest of the book would indicate they weren't interested in hearing that message anyway. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just God saying this this wrath that I'm bringing on um, Jerusalem, it's actually going to happen. And they have, within fairly recent memory, the the miraculous salvation from Sennacherib and his forces. And so the people, again, instead of the Lord saving us, they're like, well, well, you know, we got our magic talisman. We got this temple. And God's just, he's going to, he'll never let anything happen to his temple, which is um, not true. And... um, the false kind of trust that he wants. He wants you to say, the Lord, if, if as long as I abide in him, he won't let anything happen to me, uh, would be a would be a better approach. But they're, they're not particularly interested in listening to the Lord um, at all. What strikes me particularly in this text is that Jeremiah singles out the kings who sit on David's throne, which I think fits in with what you're saying about, oh, look, we've got the temple. There's any number of things that they could have pointed to outwardly, among them being the kings on David's throne. Look, there's somebody sitting on the throne. He's descended from David, so we're good. And and here Jeremiah includes that among the things that will be destroyed, that will receive the wrath of God, that will be this filled with wine, the drunkenness, that this is not a good thing that, that they're going to experience by, by no means. I mean, it's just the, you know, verse 14 describes in great detail and horror what's going to happen. Everybody is going to, to receive this, this wrath of God. Pastor, yes, and that's, go ahead. that's a perfect segue into Christ. Then take it. You got five exactly minutes. what happened. <laughs> The, the king, Jesus Christ, who sits on David's throne, uh, is uh, like one of these vessels, right? Uh, we get this Gethsemane imagery about drinking the cup. You know, if, if it be your will, take this cup from me. That's Jeremiah imagery. Um, likewise, when James and John approach Jesus or send their mom to approach Jesus and ask for to be sitting at the, the right and left hand when he comes into his glory, 
Jesus immediately asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And uh, they say, uh, yeah, we're able, which is, you know, Lord have mercy is uh, kind of the answer here. And so the Lord does, he, he drinks this, this cup of wrath uh, in God's wrath upon the kings of, of, of David uh, will not be abated. That's what verse uh, 14 says. Uh, it's it's not it's not going to change. Um, you know, I have a separate translation that says no pity, compassion, or mercy will stop me from destroying them. Uh, and so the the Lord Jesus Christ uh, experiences that wrath, and nothing could stop could stop it. Uh, Jesus asked, and the Lord, according to His will, did not prevent it. Uh, Simon Peter tried to flat out get in the way, rebuking Jesus, this shall never happen to you. He says, get behind me, Satan, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so Christ uh, suffers this wrath. Now, the, the reason he's the Christ and the Lord and the Messiah and the reason why we don't uh, despair or languish uh, in this heavy word is because it is in Christ now that you and I uh, and all those of faith, sons of Abraham, um, receive the promised mercy and grace of God. And so Jesus Christ uh, becomes a prophet, who in the in <laughs> in Matthew, right? Uh, who do people say that I am? Some people say you're the prophet Jeremiah. Yeah. Matthew's the only one to include Jeremiah in that list. Um, but uh, Jeremiah, uh, Jesus. Uh, preaching like Jeremiah is inviting people to hear the word of the Lord. Um, and uh, as a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, the sheep know the voice of their shepherd, and they follow him. And in this way, um, the the clinging loincloth um, is um, working as it's designed. They do listen, whereas they wouldn't in Jeremiah 13:11. And um, as ones who listen, the Lord uh, does the things he says, which is he makes for himself a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, which is reminiscent of, uh, you know, maybe Ephesians 5 talk, or at the very least, First uh, Peter chapter 2. So um, the Lord is, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior in this way. That doesn't negate the the wrath of God, um, but uh, endures it for our sake, and uh, and brings us into right relationship, as we would call righteousness with God, which is what you know the Lord is our righteousness. Another famous Jeremiah passage. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us today with Jeremiah thirteen verses one to fourteen. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions for us, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app to record a message through the open mic feature. Love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.